The Emerging Markets Equities Podcast by Aberdeen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Aberdeen Emerging Markets Equity Podcast. I'm Nick Robinson from the EM Equity Team. In this podcast series, we explore the factors that underpin our thinking on emerging markets. From key individuals to evolving trends, we seek to answer the five W's, who, what, where, when, and why, that are shaping investment opportunities in the region. In today's episode, we're returning to the subject of the changing regulatory landscape in China. We've discussed this topic in a few previous episodes, but I thought it was worth coming back to given how much this has been dominating emerging market news flow in recent weeks. Regular listeners will be aware that the Chinese government has this year been mostly focused on regulation within the tech sector. However, now we've seen this focus shift more broadly across the economy, more recently with emphasis also on this idea of common prosperity. Recent regulatory change has included policy moves to address wealth inequality, We've seen a ban on academic cramming schools. We've seen policies announced to cut kids' video gaming and policies even to curb rampant celebrity fandom. This has created investor concerns that the government is calling time on their capitalist experiment and wants to return to a society with more communist characteristics, a change that could have huge investment implications in emerging markets. So to help me tackle this weighty subject, I'm delighted today to be joined by my colleague Devon Kalu. Devon is Head of Public Markets for Aberdeen and is also the Head of the Emerging Markets Equity Team. Devon, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Nick, and uh, thank you very much for having me on. Um, Things are busy, as you said. Uh, There's a lot of focus on China, so uh, this is a very timely conversation. Great. Well, let's, uh, let's crack on. So perhaps a good place to start is this idea of common prosperity. Um, So some of the regulatory change this year has been quite surprising, notably the clampdown in after-school tuition, which is not the most obvious or predictable sector to go after. So how would you think about what common prosperity means and what do you think the government is trying to achieve? I think the basic thought underlying a lot of what the government is trying to do is to tackle the issue of inequality. And under the, the banner of common prosperity, uh, it's unleashed a uh, blizzard of regulatory measures, which essentially are focused on three key areas. Uh, the first is around this anti-competitive practices of which many of the e-commerce companies have fallen foul of. Uh, they're very keen to promote the interests of labor and the proportion of wealth is going to labor. So again, some business models have been challenged. And then the one which has impacted the education companies and others has been reinforcing the role of the state in terms of the provision of public services. And here, uh, really, the focus has been around education, has been around healthcare, and around uh, the property sector. And as a result of that, you've seen the significant uh, uncertainty uh, in lots of businesses. But I think uh, one of the things that we perhaps need to remember and just put into some sort of context is that what the government is trying to do with common prosperity is ease inequality, which means spreading better the benefits of growth. So China wholeheartedly embraced uh, market principles since 1979. And since then, uh, what you've seen over the last 40 plus years is a significant increase in wealth in China overall. But you've also seen a significant increase in inequality. And that is ultimately what the Chinese government is trying to tackle. 
Now, you could look at this in one or two ways, perhaps, and I would suggest that um, we're still not clear uh, which it is. But the first is either, at worst, this is populist measures by the Chinese government. At best, actually, this represents the building the foundations for the next leg of uh, growth for the Chinese economy and benefit to the Chinese people. So it's a very interesting time and uh, lots of things for us to focus on and talk about. Uh, but I would say that, in my opinion, it's not the stepping back from market principles underlying economic development, because why would they? It's been so incredibly successful for them over the last 40 odd years. So you don't think that this, is, uh, this marks the end of Chinese capitalism, or, the, or at least the version of Chinese capitalism that they've been embracing until quite recently? I don't think that this represents the end of the role of the private sector. I don't think this represents the end of the ability of Chinese companies to make money for shareholders as well as uh, provide services and goods for people. And I don't think this represents uh, China closing itself off to foreign capital, foreign ownership, uh, and indeed uh, rolling back uh, the time in terms of globalization. So in that regard, um, very much uh, China remains committed to market principles and aspects of capitalism. Yes, certainly I saw that about 80% of employment in China, it comes out of the private sector and more than 50% of tax collection. So you'd think that that's a fairly critical part of the, the Chinese economy that they'll want to at least preserve and, and grow. So moving on, do you think where geographically shares are listed is going to become even more important in the future? So I'm thinking domestic A shares versus US listings and, and Hong Kong listings to a lesser extent. Do you think the government's likely to be more reticent to damage business models of A shares where the investor base is, is mostly d domestic? And you know, is it a coincidence that the big education companies that effectively had their business models destroyed all have their primary listing in the US? So that's got a complicated question and I suspect there's an element of truth uh, to uh, what you're asking in terms of whether they're prioritizing domestics or the foreigners, perhaps. But I would see it slightly differently. Uh, one of the things the Chinese government is very keen to do as part of living on the common prosperity is to improve uh, control and oversight. And by having companies listed outside of China, arguably, it becomes harder for China to have that proper oversight. So certainly they are keen to have more companies or companies listed in China, including Hong Kong. And actually, oddly enough, we would probably be supportive of that. Uh, one of the things that we've seen over the years is that actually the Chinese companies listed in America in terms of the ADRs uh, typically provide less protection for minority investors or indeed investors more generally. Uh, in contrast, uh, listing in Hong Kong, uh, you have better protections. Uh, so as a result, um, generally, I would say, I'm, I'm more comfortable with companies listed in Hong Kong than they are via the ADR route that many have taken in the past. But I think the other thing to just remember and bear in mind is that the constituents of these various markets are different. So what is the bulk of the companies that make up the ADR or US listed names are e-commerce education names, Whereas if you look at the onshore market, particularly in the Asia market, then there's much more uh, variety of companies to invest in, much more domestic oriented companies to invest in. So I think there's, that's an element as well in terms of which of these different markets are likely to perform, uh, understanding what are those under, underlying constituents. 
Thanks. And we've seen um, both Tencent and Alibaba announce 100 billion renminbi projects uh, for the good of common prosperity, as well as regulations that could potentially uh, reduce returns that those companies can, can generate. Do you think that, you know, given this and given that increased national service burden that we're seeing across companies in China, that returns that companies are able to generate more broadly are likely to be lower going forward? I wouldn't focus necessarily on the issue of the charitable donations. Uh, one thing that we see across the world, and indeed in many emerging markets, is that companies do attempt to give back to society over and above about the goods and services and employment that they provide. So I'm a little less focused on that, although it is a topic that people quite often look at to see where the direction of travel is, I suppose, with the underlying companies. I think more importantly is just thinking about the business models. So essentially, we've got uh, e-commerce businesses with Tencent and Alibaba that have been tremendously successful, uh, but they have significant information benefits versus many of their peers. Uh, they have enjoyed lower regulation and scrutiny than some of their peers. And uh, as a result of that, uh, regulation is changing. So around the provision of financial services, for instance, bringing it in line with banks is probably no bad thing because ultimately you're trying to manage financial risk. Making sure that companies uh, with significant consumer data via their platforms don't abuse that and rule out competition is also probably no bad thing as well. So uh, I think that what we'll see in these companies going forward is that they will probably make uh, or will enjoy slower growth or lower growth than they have historically. And they will need to look at different ways to maximize returns on capital. So it's not just about leveraging off their monopolistic um, uh, or quasi-monopolistic uh, situation. So uh, that was a very long-winded way of telling you that what I think is going to happen with many of these e-commerce names is that they will continue to grow and do well, but they would do so at a lower pace and would lower returns on capital until they look at um, alternative ways to generate better returns on capital. And as a result, these companies will probably trade at a lower multiple than they have historically and may trade at a lower multiple relative to their international peers until such time as we see many of the or some of the policies being adopted in China being exported or adopted in other countries. I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that we see uh, similar policies being enacted in China against e-commerce companies being rolled out across the world. And that's something that we need to monitor. Outside of e-commerce, uh, where do you see some of the bigger risks today in terms of sectors? And, and conversely, where do you think there's more opportunity and potential tailwinds from these policy announcements? So I think you're absolutely right. There is a clear uh, policy headwinds and policy tailwinds, which we need to get some views on or have some views on in terms of how we're allocating capital. Uh, but the devil is always in the details. So if I think uh, in terms of the, the headwinds, the areas are quite clearly our education, our healthcare and uh, property. And when you look at education, you've obviously seen the government decide that the provision of education within China has to be a public service, not a private sector service. So the scope for the private sector to aid uh, in the provision of education has been curtailed, if not stopped. And as a result, business models built on that uh, don't look uh, very good 
The second area is around uh, healthcare. Now, healthcare covers a variety of things, but the government focus seems to be on the provision of basic services in terms of basic healthcare. So having cheap drugs, um, access to um, basic medical attention and uh, support and services uh, will be the priority. But that leaves uh, lots of space for other types of healthcare developments, such as some of the new healthcare tech, such as uh, the new drug discoveries and the process around drug discoveries. So you need to be a little careful about where you're looking at there, because it's not not everything is covered under this broad ban of uh, or, or broad focus on healthcare from the government. And finally, with regard to property, this is the really big one for us because ideally the government would like to provide affordable housing for low-income, uh, new entry um, individuals, people moving in from the rural areas to the cities, uh, and certainly that's been a policy uh, focus for the government. But Interestingly enough, what, what that will be like is uh, affordable, subsidised housing. That cannot be done for the entire population. So we certainly believe that there will have to be a private sector involvement in the provision of housing. But where the split between the public and the private occurs is still a little unclear. And as a result, um, you've seen the share prices come off. But I do think that there is going to have to be the government's acceptance of the private sector within housing and indeed uh, the private sector companies being able to make a profit on building houses because otherwise they wouldn't do it. So those are where the areas of the headwinds or I would say there's lack of clarity or still not very clear on. In terms of the tailwinds, yeah, I mean, there's some really interesting areas. Uh, the ones that have been talked about um, quite frequently are things like the localization trade. And that's essentially where China was looking to become more self-sufficient in certain technologies um, and cutting-edge technologies. So there's semiconductor, electric vehicles, uh, some of the um, higher-end uh, technology um, components. Those are areas which will enjoy policy support. In addition to that, uh, China's commitment to net zero in terms of its green targets or carbon targets means that there's going to be significant uh, focus on uh, local green companies. And they should continue to enjoy very strong policy support. And then the final one, I would say, is that this idea of trying to improve the welfare of individuals in terms of um, affordable uh, living. Um, I think what will come out of that is you'll see actually potentially a real drive to boost consumption. And particularly if the government is successful in reducing the cost of living in terms of housing, education, and healthcare, that that will free up a lot of disposable income for other things. And it ties in with the Chinese aim of trying to uh, pursue a more domestic orientated growth. And as a result, I actually think the consumption story in China, if anything, has got stronger with the regulatory uh, announcements of late. And uh, that certainly is an area where we think there's uh, lots of opportunities. Yes, no, certainly it does feel like there's a lot going on at the moment. And I know the, the team is working very hard on, on identifying those opportunities. So should have some in the portfolio at some stage or more of them. So it's been quite a year for, for regulation. But I suppose one of the advantages of China's government's political centralisation is that these regulatory cycles can occur pretty quickly, given you know, no need for lobbyists or votes to go through the rest of government. Recent language by President Xi suggests that he was satisfied with some of the progress made on reforms. So do you think we're 
kind of coming to the final stages of this and we're, we're past the worst in terms of the uh, volatility of the regulations? I think on balance uh, we are, but it is good to remember just the historical context here. So in, in the period that the Chinese Communist Party or the, the Chinese government has been in, and some of the current form being in power, there's been lots of uh, episodes of where the Chinese government has decided that this is a priority and has mobilized the resources of state to focus on those priorities. And if I can, I would say there's almost a, a revolutionary zeal uh, that quite often accompanies uh, those policies. So you could go back to Mao, to uh, the sort of uh, things that occurred. But I suppose more recently, uh, you've seen things like the crackdown on corruption in 2013. You've seen the attempt to tackle the shadow uh, banking system. You've seen the uh, move to try and tackle the property market as well. All of those uh, periods have been uh, relatively short um, in terms of uh, a year or so. Uh, but they have been periods of significant activity and have reset the priorities for the state. Um, it's also worthwhile bearing in mind that all of those priorities were, were good priorities in that they had sound economic and uh, rationale behind them. So we think that the government continues to try this balance uh, between making sure that the, the, they reprioritize on key issues but they don't try uh, and throttle uh, the overall economy. And uh, i just say one thing more on this. When you, talk, when you look at the recent announcements by the Chinese government, you know, one of the other priorities, of course, is this innovation agenda. So the great desire to move up to become an advanced economy, you know, innovation is at the heart of that. Uh, if you look at regulation historically, too much regulation throttles innovation. But similarly, too little regulation allows monopolies to come about, which also throttles innovation. So I think the Chinese government is aware of that and will seek to balance that as they try to achieve their longer term aims of becoming an advanced economy. OK, well, I think that that uh, feels like a good place to draw the podcast to a close on that more positive note. So it's been great to get those insights. And with that, I'd like to thank my guest, Devon. Thank you. Thank you. And thank everyone who took the time today to listen in. If you enjoyed today, then please download our other podcasts from our website or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Watch out for our next episode and tune in. Thank you for listening to the Emerging Markets Equities Podcast brought to you by Aberdeen. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and for more great content, visit Aberdeen.com. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein, and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication, and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only, or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested.
Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.